Well, our sermon this morning comes from Ruth chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 2. You'll find that on page 222 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you're visiting with us here this morning and you do not have a Bible of your own, we certainly love for you to take that Bible that's in that rack in front of you, and that'll be our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word, and so please feel free to take that. And I would, by the way, encourage you, as I try to do most Sundays, to, to have the Word of God in your lap as we work our way through it. It's going to be up on the screen in a moment as I read through it. But what we're going to do is we're just going to work through these, what, 23 verses this morning. God help us and see if we get done. And, and we, you're going to want to have the Word. It's going to help you engage in God's Word, that you're reminded that this is not simply words of a man in front of you, but this is the very Word of God being taught to you, and that God is communicating to you through His preached Word and by the power of His Spirit. So I really encourage you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. Hopefully by now you found your place to Ruth chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, hear now the word of God. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before? The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some of the bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gathered in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Beside, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Father, we thank you for your word and what you have given to us to consider this morning. We believe it is 
your revelation to us, that you want to speak to us, teach us, show us who you are and how you work. And so we ask, Father, in your kindness and grace, will you please give us ears to hear and a heart to rejoice in the truth that is before us, that we might know it and apply it to our lives, that we might leave this place more in love with your Son and our Lord, that we may follow him more faithfully. We pray that you would minister to those who need you to minister to them, Father, those in need, sorrow, hardship, and difficulty, that you, by your Spirit and your Word, would come and teach them truth, that their heads may be lifted, that they may know that there is a God in this world who loves and cares for all who trust in Christ. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book, Mystery on the Desert, Maria Reich writes of a strange series of hills and valleys that were made by ancient Peruvians. It's unusual for these ancient civilizations to make these massive structures, these massive hills. But what's even more so is that the hills were seemingly random. A a hill would go a hundred yards and then stop. Or or maybe another one would go and it would abruptly turn to the left or to the right. There were hills everywhere in this part of the country with no seeming pattern whatsoever. And so many over time were aware of them for centuries. Many had speculated to the reason for the, the construction of these hills. Some suggested it was a, an a irrigation system. Others speculated that it was some boundary markers for an ancient unknown religion. No one really knew. That is until 1939. And the mystery was solved by Dr. Paul Kasak of the Long Island University by simply f- flying over the hills and observing them from above. And these seemingly random hills and valleys were not random at all. He actually discovered that the lines that these hills made actually formed these enormous drawings of birds and turtles and other animals. That's strange. Can you imagine making artwork which you can only appreciate if you're not on the earth? If you're you're up above it. uh, Artwork that you can't even see and, and, and enjoy. It almost sounds like something they do out in California, right? You know, the, they make this, they, they can't appreciate it until you get a, a higher perspective. Well, I think when we think about that, is that not what God often does in our lives? That we perhaps are moving down a path a certain ways and, and abruptly the path that we're on stops. Not according to our plan or our ambitions. Or maybe it turns to the left or to the right and we begin to wonder what is going on here. This is not according to my plan. This is not the life that I was supposed to have. This is not the dreams that I have been pursuing. We're left wondering why. What is going on here? It makes no sense. I would suggest to you it does make sense. If you had a different perspective. If you had a higher perspective. God's perspective. That's why I think the book of Ruth is so helpful. It gives us a glimpse of of what that perspective looks like as we watch God who rules through seemingly tragic event after another in order to bring about redemption. I would suggest to you that if you could summarize the book of Ruth by saying God rules to bring about His plan of redemption for His people. He's ruling. He's sovereign here. And of course, we, we can learn that from many other books in the Bible, can't we? And we see that in Genesis and Numbers. And it's very clear in the book of Esther how God is ruling. But what makes Ruth exceptional, what make, makes Ruth unique is that God will do this, this exercise His providence without any king or priest or prophet. There's no vision from heaven, no angelic messenger. There is there's no flashing light or some other miraculous event. It is a story of how God rules behind the scenes in the seemingly ordinary course of life in seeking after food and perhaps love and a family and a future. And it is a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty, of His providence in the life of these women and their family. In fact, by the time I I hope I finish chapter 2, you're going to be amazed at how God is working through this family's life. And perhaps there are some who would say, wow, Ruth and Naomi sure were lucky. That was certainly an amazing coincidence, after coincidence, in fact. Well, I will not be one of those who will suggest such things. I don't think, by the way, that there is any luck. I think that there are no coincidences and that nothing happens by accident. I believe all things happen by appointment. 
As God, our sovereign ruler of the universe, orchestrates their lives, and indeed I trust he does ours as well. And so I invite you this morning to watch God rule. Watch his invisible hand work as he cares for his people. In order to do so, it would be helpful for us to remember where we were last week when we consider Ruth chapter 1. When these hardships begin to fall upon this woman, Naomi, and it is one after another. It begins with famine, then a self-induced exile, some idolatrous marriages, and then death, and death, and death. And Naomi will survey all that's happened to her in the past decade, and she will conclude in chapter 1 and verse 13, the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. God is against me, she suggests. Which teaches us one thing, that Naomi believes in the sovereignty of God, doesn't she? She uh, is going to affirm that God rules, that God is providentially ruling even over her own life. She affirms this and believes this, and I believe rightly so. But what she forgets is God's goodness. That God is working for her good and working for our own good. And I would suggest that often in times of pain and hardship, we become so self-absorbed with the hurt that we face that we begin to miss what God is doing around us, become blind to his blessings. Certainly Naomi was. She was blind to them. Chief among them was this woman standing at her side named Ruth who gave this wonderful speech in chapter 1 saying, I'm going with you. Your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. Where you're buried, I'm going to be buried. May God curse me if I break this vow to you. And she makes this wonderful pledge, this wonderful provision of God for Naomi through Ruth. But Naomi doesn't see it. She says in verse 21 of chapter 1, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And so she would affirm that God is in control, but she's cranky about it. She's like a Presbyterian, right? (laughs) The frozen chosen, right? But Ruth, oh, she's a Baptist. She would affirm the sovereignty of God in all things and find great delight in it. As she is not blind like Naomi. And so we end in chapter 1, and really chapter 1 ends with kind of a cliffhanger. In fact, I mentioned last week that the, the, the struggle I'm having actually in, in uh, writing these sermons is that Ruth does two things. One, it teaches us these wonderful truths. And then two, it's this incredible story. And the, I'm trying the best I can to actually teach the truths but not lose the story. And so we end chapter 1 with, this, with actually two cliffhangers. We, we end, one cliffhanger is, is what about the story? And the, and the question is, will they find food? They left Bethlehem because they were hungry. They returned to Bethlehem because they were hungry and now empty. But there's a theological cliffhanger that, that chapter 1 presents. It affirms the sovereignty of God, but it asks the question, well, what about His goodness? Is He good? And we will find chapter 2 is going to answer both those questions. In fact, God's goodness is going to be so clear and obvious that even Naomi cannot miss it. We see even a hint of it in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, we may not know it yet, but he's, he's Prince Charming in this fairy tale. Right? He will be the knight in shining armor, ar- arm, armor who will come to the rescue. And he's just introduced to us here. In fact, he's not even part of the story. So the the narrator says, by the way, as you read this story, realize there's a man out there named Boaz. And so he begins there in verse 2 with uh, the odd couple, if you will, Ruth and Naomi. And as we look at this text before us, we're going to see how it is that God cares for us providentially. How does God work? How does God rule to provide for his people? I would suggest to you that there are at least four truths that we can learn how God cares for us. The first being that God cares for us through diligent labor. We ended the, the chapter two, chapter one, excuse me, with the, the return of the barley feast. You see that at the end of verse 22 of chapter one? And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so the harvest is there, and we know that they need to eat. And so um, here we are. Um, Ruth is going to take initiative in order to meet this incredible pressing need of food, as we see in verse two of chapter two. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. 
And so she says, I'm going to go out and provide for us. I, I hope to go out and glean. Now, in this day, the harvesters would walk, and in their, in their uh, left hand, they would grab um, some stalks, and they would cut off uh, the heads of those stalks and have the grain, and they would grab another bundle and keep doing that until their hand was full, and then they would tie that up or leave that behind for other people to tie. And anything that would fall out, anything that would be left over, the laws of Israel allowed for the poor to follow behind them and to collect what, what fell down, to collect the leftovers. In fact, we see this... Uh, repeated a number of times in God's law. One place would be Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor, the widow, and the alien. It's interesting because Ruth is all three. A poor, alien, widow. This was in Israel's day the welfare provision, if you will. better, Probably better understood as a workfare. Uh, what I read, it was very competitive, that there would be many gleaners out there that you would actually have to fight over the scraps. And so it was a difficult job, a competitive job. And, and out Ruth goes, as we see in verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she goes to, to do this work. She hopes to find a field in which she can find a man who will give her favor. I don't know if you noticed that in verse 2. She says, uh, her hope is to glean after him who, in whose sight I shall find favor. It's interesting because the law um, offered this to everyone in Israel. This was their right by law to do so. But you do remember, as we considered last week, this is the time of the judges. And as we saw, there was no king in the land, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. I trust there were many people who thought it was right not to allow gleaners into their field. And so Ruth, perhaps aware of the day in which she lived, says, I hope I find a man who's following God. I hope that he will grant me favor, she says. And in understanding this, you kind of get the sense of the danger in which they're in. I mean, they're in a very real danger of starvation. That Ruth and Naomi really don't have anything. And, and Ruth is hoping that she might find some place where she can find perhaps a meal for the evening. In fact, the danger is just not starvation. But there is also a physical danger. As you could imagine, the danger of a woman alone in a field filled with harvesters. Again, this is the time of Judges. And if you study that book, you will actually see a prominent event in that book of sexual assault by an entire city. It is an incredibly dangerous time to live. It's incredibly dangerous for for Ruth to go out. In fact, Naomi was aware of it. If you look in verse 22, and Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that that you go out with this young woman less in another field you be assaulted. You add the fact that, by the way, she's a Moabite, which is highlighted in verse 2, that Ruth the Moab, she has no family or clan to protect her. Her people are even known to be the women, especially sexually immoral. And out, there she is out in the field trying to find food for her and Naomi. In fact, you think about the danger she faced both through starvation and the physical, uh, physical assault danger. It serves to underscore, I think, um, how strange it was that Naomi didn't go with her. You notice that? It's just Ruth going off by herself. I would think two gleaners would have a better chance than one to find food. In fact, even if, if Naomi was unable to glean, she can at least be there. I think she would provide a sense of security for Ruth, another eyes, another witness. I think we're perhaps left wondering if her bitterness, her despair, has left her unwilling to contribute. I wonder if she's thinking, why even bother? God's against me. Why even try? And there she is, sits in her bitterness. In fact, her short reply there in verse 2 leads me to conclude this as she said to her, go, my daughter, just go. And there she stays. Whether this is the case for Naomi or not, I think you probably, in your experience, your life experience, you've known people who struggle with despondency and despair. And, And often it leads to this inactivity, doesn't it? Which is probably the worst thing that they can do. To think, why even try? God's against me. And this inactivity only serves to make their situation worse, which then again feeds their desire to do nothing. And I think perhaps the best thing to do in the midst of sadness and, and depression is actually to be active, especially in serving others as you take your eyes off your own pain and hurt and begin to contribute to other people's lives. But Naomi's not there yet, is she? And so Ruth goes off and, and she hopes to find a meal or two. And she does much better than that. You notice in verse 17, So she gleaned in the field until evening, 
And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So you see Ruth working all the way into evening. She did find a field, by the way, in which she could reap, and she would work all day long. In fact, you jump up in verse 7. We read about her. Uh, Ruth said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short work. And so she is working all day long. Other people are now taking notice of her labor from sun up to sundown. In fact, back in verse 17, she not only gleaned after the sun went down, she went to thresh the grain, measure it out, and then she would take it home. She is an impressive woman, I think. In fact, you even see the humility in which she does this. For in verse 7, she even asks permission. There's a request to glean, isn't there? There is no demand for a handout. She simply wants the leftovers, and she's willing to ask permission to gather them. It reminds me of another foreign woman that, that encountered Jesus. Remember the Canaanite woman who wanted her daughter healed and asked Jesus to heal her daughter? And Jesus says, no, I'm here for Israel. And she would respond to Jesus, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Our Lord would respond, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. That's like Ruth. She's not pushy. She's humble, meek. But she's not lazy, is she? She takes this initiative, this diligence. I think this is how God provides. I think God provides through diligent labor. In fact, uh, the author Ruth really wants to hammer on her work ethic, how God provided for her. She did not sit back and say, okay, God, you provide. She did not pray, God, give me my daily bread, and then turn on the television. She went out to seek that bread. The reason why I want to camp here is that many people have been accused, if you have a strong view in the sovereignty of God, that that makes you passive, that that makes you lazy. After all, why pray if God is sovereign? Why work if God is sovereign? Why witness if God is sovereign? Why labor if God is sovereign? I would suggest to you that a belief in the sovereignty of God doesn't lead to laziness. It leads to the exact opposite. A hopeful labor, knowing that God is in control. Paul himself said, I toil struggling with all God's energy that powerfully works within me. I'm going to toil. I'm going to strive. The reason why I wanted to mention this this morning because there is great confusion, I think. Perhaps you've, you've heard a story that, that preachers like to tell of a, of a man who wanted greater victory over sin. He wanted greater obedience. And his preacher said, well, you must let God do that for you. And so he went home and he cut out six letters out of wood, L-E-T-G-O-D, let God, and nailed them to his wall as a reminder that he needs to let God do this work in his life. And he went off to work and returned home that evening, and the D had fallen off, and there it read, let go. And so he concluded, I don't know if this is where he gets all his theology, but he concluded (laughs) that, that in order to let God, I must let go, cease to struggle and to strive, just rest in Jesus. I would humbly suggest to you that that theology is nonsense. It's not true. Now, we are to let God be God, but we are to labor and strive and pray and work and plan and strategize. I, I think the saying should be, let God and get to work, right? Let God and strive. You know, there's another saying out there that God, even God can't uh, steer a parked car. That's kind of dumb too, but I like it much better than let God and let go, right? We have to work. We have to labor. Paul says, I'm going to labor. I'm going to strive. Ruth says, I'm going out and God will provide through my work. We want to reach the lost as a church. We want to raise godly children. We want to restore our marriages. We want to see God's abundant provision. We must work. We must discipline ourselves. We must go to the Lord and we must strive for godliness and Christlikeness in our life through the strength in which God provides. God cares for us through diligent labor. But that's not all how God cares for us. He secondly cares for us through godly people. If you look back in verse 4, as we kind of pick up the story there at the beginning after considering Ruth's labor, we are introduced once again to this man named Boaz as we read, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Now, we already heard about Boaz in verse 1. We heard a couple things about him. Number one, that he's a relative of Naomi's husband, her deceased husband. He's from the same clan that Elimelech is from, uh, which means that he's going to have some responsibility to care for other people within that clan, which Naomi by marriage is now in. We also saw in verse 1 that he is a worthy man. 
Now, some think that's a reference to his wealth. Maybe your translation explains he was a wealthy man in verse 1. Most are going to suggest that's a reference to his social standing, that he was a man of, of good reputation. He's a man of character. And I think we see that character in verse 4 in how he greets his employees. And he said to his reapers, may, may the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. And they answered to him, the Lord bless you. And so he shows up at work to check over his, his laborers. And the first thing he says, may God bless you. In fact, even more than that, he says, may you sense God's presence today as he blesses you. And can you imagine working for a company like that? Your boss shows up and I says, I hope you sense God's presence today as he blesses you and as he works in your life. Now get to work, right? And so someone come and, and, and encourage you like that. That would be exciting, wouldn't it? A wonderful place to work. In fact, I wonder what it would be like if you tried that this week. You just show up at work and start saying to people that work next to you, hey, may you sense God's presence today. May God be with you today. May God bless you today. Imagine the reactions you would get. I'm sure some people would say, well, you can't say that. Right? God doesn't work here. You're not allowed to say those things. Others may tear up. I can't believe you just said that to me. I may open up sharing what's going on in their life. Others probably would turn and run from you. Right? How exciting that would be. If you have no idea what kind of reaction you have, you should try that this week and just start saying, may God be with you. May God's blessing be known to you. In fact, I'll try it at my work this week and you try it at your work this week and we'll see how it goes. It's going to be exciting and wonderful for us. And here he is. He says, God be blessed you. And we learn something about Boaz here. You see, the author's not pausing to tell us this very mundane reality, how this man greets his employees for no reason. He wants us to understand a little bit something about who Boaz is, that he truly means this. He didn't leave God at home. He brought God with him to work. He means this greetings and evidently his employees know that he means it because they respond back to him. The Lord bless you. And by the way, God is about to bless him because he's about to lay eyes on this young woman out in his field. As we see in verse five, the Lord's, uh, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Right? That's Hebrew for check her out. Right? Right? It's like, whoa. In fact, it's interesting because he not say, does not say, who is that? Right? You see that? He says, whose is that? Who does she belong to? Who's her family? Who's her clan? And you see what the author is doing is he's driving home this point. She doesn't have a clan. She doesn't have a family. She's nobody's. In fact, this is exactly how her foreman, his foreman will respond in verse 6. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She's nobody. She's a Moabite. She's here. She's an alien. She has no one. No husband, no brother, no children. Just a mother-in-law. And in fact, he goes on and explains that he has been impressed with her. She may belong to no one, but she has worked like a dog, as we've already seen. In verse 7, she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She has worked all day long. Now, evidently, Boaz knows exactly who she was. He has heard about her, how she has abandoned her people for his people, her God for his God. And now she is in his field. And so he decides, I'm going to go talk to her which would have been a massive surprise in this day. From what I understand, a landowner going to talk to a, to a Moabite sojourner. In fact, it's even more surprising what he said in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, I don't know what you think about that as a pickup line, um, but, you know, he needs a little work, I think. But it, is, it almost sounds like he's stuttering, you know, stay here and don't go elsewhere. And you could stay here this way and I don't want you to leave. Please stay nearby. And so he's, he's really kind of wanting to provide for her, isn't he, as he speaks to her and he says, you want to stay in my fields. Literally, it's cleave to my fields. It's that same word that Ruth said to Naomi, I'm going to cleave to you, which is the same word as we learned last week. That God uses in Genesis 2.24 when he says a husband will cleave to his wife. It's this strong, hold on to my fields, he says. Hold on to my land. Don't go anywhere. And he actually helps her to, to avoid 
um, accidentally going into someone else's field. He says, stay with my women, my young women, my workers, follow after them. She could even drink from the company water cooler. He said, she doesn't have to go back to town to the common well, right? You could stay here, you can drink from that. And then you saw that aspect of protection, didn't you? He said, I've assured my men not to touch you. There'll be no such assault on my fields. My workers will not do such things. And he provides for her abundantly. And can you imagine what's going on in her mind? This woman who has, hasn't had any blessings since she's been back to Bethlehem. In fact, life has been hard up to this point. Perhaps this is the first pleasant conversation she has. She watches the landowner approach her and you wonder what's going on in her mind. Well, we see what's going on in her mind after he speaks to her. For in verse 10, we read, and then she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She's overwhelmed, isn't she? And she falls to the ground. She will go down on her knees and she'll put her forehead on the ground near his feet most likely in this this sign that she is overwhelmed with the grace in which she has been given. She strikes me as how different um, many people are in our day. Um, those who are in need often feel like they deserve what they receive. And they're upset if they don't get the handout. But not so for Ruth. She is incredibly humbled by this man's provision and by his generosity. She says, I'm unworthy. She's humbled by grace. Grace makes her more humbled. God, God designs for grace not to fill us with pride, but to humble us. And certainly Ruth experiences this. And from this posture, she expressed this this disbelief. Why? Why are you doing this? Why have you given me favor? Remember, that's the same word in verse 2. She went out to look for a man who would give her favor. She's found him, and she wonders why. He responds in verse 11. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He says to her, Ruth, I know what you've done. I I know how you've sacrificed everything. I know how you made this commitment to Naomi and and even to our God. And I don't know if you notice this by now, but Moaz, I mean, this is a solid God. This is a man of God. I mean, I don't know why we don't hear more about Boaz because from the very first time we see him to to the very last time we see him, it is about God, it's about God. And here he is approaching her and saying, God rewards you, God repay you. And he's commending to her God and and pointing out to her God. And and I, I don't know if some of you men feel a little convicted, but this man is all about God. In fact, I think, you know, we're, I don't want to spoil the story, but, but they're going to they're gonna get together. They're going to get married, if you don't know this by now. Um, and, and so there may be some dating advice here. If I could just stop here for a moment. Welcome, college students. Um, and um, it's good to see you. Listen, if there's a person you're interested in, and it is not evident that God is in their life and through their life, and they are walking with God, you ought to lace up your shoes and run. And it should be evident, by the way, pretty much from the first time, first conversation you have with them, or at least the first day you spend with them. God should be evident in a prayer or some reference or some um, reference to the ministry in in church or what God has been teaching them. I can't tell you how many times, how how much hurt has taken place in people's lives for the rest of their life because they would end up marrying a person who does not share their love for Christ. Here's a man who loves God. He is a a man whom Ruth would do well to find as her husband. He says this prayer for her. May God, may the Lord take care of you. In fact, he tells her why, doesn't he? May may God reward you because of the good things you've done? Yeah, certainly. But you notice that last part in verse 12. He says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May God reward you. May God care for you because you have taken refuge under his wings. That's where she has sought to flee to. And God's mercy comes upon anyone who seeks it. That's what, who God wants to be merciful to, those who want his mercy. And Jesus himself would approach Jerusalem and say, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing. You didn't want my mercy. See, God gives Ruth mercy because she wants it. That's it. She seeks it. She longs for it. We ought to stop trusting in our own work, shouldn't we? 
fall on our face and be astonished by grace as we seek our refuge in our God. We see how God's going to care, care for her. So Boaz prays, full reward, repayment, care for her. How's God going to do this? Well, he's going to do it through godly people like Boaz. I don't know if Boaz knows he's the answer to his own prayer, but God will use Boaz's wings, figuratively and literally in chapter 3, to actually care for her. In fact, you see her response as he says these things to her. Verse 13, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. She says, I can't believe you're saying these things to me. You have spoken to my soul. You have ministered to my heart. It seems that at this point she gets up and she goes back to her gleaning uh, work and then comes lunchtime. And the scene kind of shifts here in verse 14 as we see. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some of the bread and dip your uh, morsels in the wine. So this is their first date, isn't it? This is a, a romantic meal over some roasted grain. Right? This, is, this is the outback back then, right? They are outback, and uh, they are, uh, it was a group date, so that's good, that's wise, I think. All his workers are there, and uh, Boaz seems to be waiting for this moment. Uh, I trust she didn't join the workers for lunch, but she was probably off to the side. Maybe she didn't have any lunch. She's certainly very impoverished, and he approached her and says, why don't you come over here and sit with us? In fact, why don't I serve you some of my grain, and, and I'm going to give you some of my food? And perhaps he kneels down and brushes some roasted kernels into her lap, and I like to think their eyes must have met, right? And there's a little bit of blushing going on and everybody else is watching thinking, give me a break. This is getting ridiculous. Maybe we should leave you guys alone. And, and there, there they are just, he's ministering to him. And I don't know if you see it, but, but I see the gospel everywhere here. You know, I see the gospel, how the Lord of the harvest invites the impoverished, the needy, the foreigner to his table. And not only to his table, but he rises that he might serve. Is this not a picture of what Christ would do for us? In fact, he not only serves her, but evidently, according to verse 14, she is chowing down, as you see. And she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over, right? She asked for a doggy bag. Um, She said, I want to take this home to go back. She eats to her full. I trust that this will be a very rare occasion. Of course, you and I eat to her full almost every meal we eat, and perhaps even more than we're full. But it would be rare for them to actually eat till they're satisfied. In fact, she even has leftovers. And so she goes back to, to work, work after she sat at this table. You think about that. She began this day. Starvation was a very real possibility. And by lunchtime, she's now sitting at the landowner's table, and he's feeding her. Well, after lunch, she returns to her work, as we see in verse 15, when she rose to glean. And at this time, Boaz gathers his buddies together and says, Okay, guys, I need your help here. Boaz instructed his young men, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her, right? And I trust these guys are stunned at this. Uh, Are you saying that we're supposed to just pretty much drop food for her? And he says, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Just leave it there behind. You notice um, that Boaz wants to provide for her, doesn't he? But it's interesting because he doesn't say, why don't you just go to my barn and get what you need? In fact, better yet, I'll just drop some food off by at your place this afternoon. No, he says, let her keep working. Now, he's not a jerk, so he's going to make it easier for her, right? You know, leave some behind. I wonder if he's considering what kind of woman this is. Will she continue to labor? Will she continue to work? And we see in him this incredible compassion that Boaz has this compassion for the poor. And I think because God has compassion for the poor. His concern and compassion that God has, we too are to have on those who are in need. Jesus would come to a crowd, and he, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Paul writes, clothe yourself with compassion. I wonder, Christian, how are you showing compassion? To whom are you showing it to? How do you reflect the nature of the God of whom you worship? One way to show compassion is to welcome outsiders, even within our church service as visitors come, to not just look for your friends, but to look for those who are out of place. We don't know what brought them. Perhaps they're invited from a friend, new to the area, looking for a church, or maybe there's some great need and they need someone to talk to. You and I should have eyes for them. By the way, what I hear from visitors is that we are very good at this. Please continue, Hamilton Baptist Church. Look for visitors. Sometimes God will bring needs in front of you. Sometimes he will present them from you. And you should be like Boaz. And even willing to sacrifice to meet that need. He's paying for this out of his own pocket. That you would be a blessing to others. 
We should especially be people who care for the poor and the widow and the alien. We saw this not only taught in the Old Testament, we see practice in the New Testament. It's the reason that the church has deacons. There's a list of widows in the church at Ephesus. James says pure religion is to look after orphans. We should be giving ourselves to this ministry. We should have eyes for opportunities in our community. I'm so thankful for the work that you all do with Tree of Life and not only volunteering there but contributing food and some of you working at First Choice Women's Center as you minister to women in terribly difficult needs, the men's ministry who just fed a meal to the disabled in in Loudoun County and a group of men who are mowing a disabled man's lawn uh, every other week throughout this summer, the school supplies that you're putting out there for the impoverished children. I don't know if you know, last year 12 elementary students in Hamilton were fed every weekend because of Hamilton Baptist. Church, and we could go on and on, and I don't know what you're doing personally. But let's continue to do this, and let's do this even more because we as a church need to represent who God is. In fact, I think the more mature we get, the more we should give, shouldn't we? I would suggest, by the way, that if you think of it, maybe even write yourself a note that you pray for our budget team that's going to meet this week. This incredibly important document for our next fiscal year, I pray that they would be inspired to be a church that sends money out of this building into our communities. And pray that we would be a people like this. The Bible says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, who defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow, and loves the alien, giving food and clothing. We should represent this God. We should be like him. Well, you see, verse 17, Ruth is done with her labor, so she gleaned in the fields till evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. It's about 25 pounds, um, she, probably enough for two women to uh, feed on for a week. We know that Ruth is tough because she strapped it to her back, according to verse 18, and she took it up and went into the city. She carried that 25 pounds back to Naomi, who was very surprised, as we see in verse 18. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. I don't know if you can see Naomi's face in your mind's eyes, sitting there wallowing in her bitterness all day long. And here comes Ruth, and she drops down a sack of 25 pounds of food. And not just a sack of food, she actually whips out her leftovers from the outback and gives it to her, as we see there at the end of verse 18. She also brought out and gave her food that she had left over after being satisfied. Naomi, of course, is is amazed at this, wanting to know what happened. As we see in verse 19, her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you clean today? Where have you worked? How did you get all this? Well, the ants, we've already considered them. One, through her diligent labor. Two, through a godly individual named Boaz. And then three, I would like to suggest to you quickly that we do so through what the world might call chance events. We see this in verse 3. We've already looked at it, but just notice this little phrase. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She just happened to, as luck would have it, we might say. Or what a coincidence that she would end up there literally as she, she chanced, chanced in the Hebrew. That's how she ended up there. Of course, we know how she really ended up there. It was God who guided her. In fact, Naomi's understanding the sovereignty of God is going to serve her well in verse 20 when she says, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. God has blessed us. His kindness is upon us that God guided her to that field. What's interesting is he didn't do it through some sense of inner peace or some angelic vision or some voice from heaven that says, Turn left and go through the gate. Right? She just perhaps got up that morning, prayed, and God directed her steps. God continues to do this in our life, continues to bring around divine appointments, even though it's not even seen to us. In fact, we see another in verse 4 when it says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Right? It just happened. She just happened to end up in Boaz's field, and Boaz just happened to show up in that day. Even the author wants to highlight that and say, Behold, Boaz showed up, right? Check it out. Boaz is there. And all these things are just happening together for it all to work out. It's almost like one of those romantic movies that your wife makes you watch. And when, right? And you have all these events just fitting together perfectly, and this happens, and then this happens, and the teddy bear's left on the tower, and everything's just kind of working all together, and you're thinking, oh, come on, give me a break. Right? And you turn to your wife to mock the movie together, and then she's just there bawling, like, I can't believe this, this is happening. And you think, this is absurd, this never happens. Well, evidently, according to the book of Ruth, it's happening. I don't know, it's the first chick book or whatever's going on, but this is, God is working this together. God is sovereign, isn't he? He's planning this. He is bringing this about. I wonder if there's any examples in your life that you look at where you are today and think, I never thought I'd be here. 
how did I end up at this place? I think about my own life. In fact, what I'm doing this very moment. This is never my plan. The fact that I went to college and I... I just happened to study speech, um, I think was the work of God. And then I went to graduate school to study international security at Duke University. And, and I just happened to end up there at Duke. And I just happened to end up in a church there, Crescent Baptist Church, that just happened to be looking for a youth director. And I just happened to be dirt poor. And so I just happened to take that job. And I just happened, after I graduated Duke, not to be able to pass a lie detector test, even though I took one five times. And I just happened to be next to a seminary 20 miles away. And I just happened here this morning to be preaching to you. And every time I step into this pulpit, I am reminded as I pray before I go, my God is sovereign. My God is in control. My God rules. He is the God of the universe and his hand rests upon me and upon you and does so for your good. As we lastly consider, God cares for you abundantly, abundantly. And we see this in her provision, don't we? How much she has received. Naomi recognizes it. As Ruth returns home with a lot of food and much to talk about, so we pick up the story in verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Right? She's excited. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Right? And he will be blessed. Trust me. We'll see that in chapter 3. Right? But she says, May ye be blessed. And then what's interesting is kind of like each person knows a piece of information that the other person don't. Like the best information hasn't been shared because Ruth knows that she's been working in Boaz's field, but she doesn't know who Boaz is. And Naomi knows who Boaz is, but she doesn't know what field she's been working in. And so she wants to know who is this man who's blessed you. And then Ruth is going to tell her here in verse 19, but the author is going to keep that last piece of information all the way to the end of the sentence. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is... Is Boaz. It's Boaz. And in hearing that, right, little Miss Bitter becomes little Miss Giddy. And she starts bouncing off the walls, as we see in verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose, referring to God's kindness, has not forsaken the living and the dead. She begins to praise God. You see that Naomi goes from bitterness She is the one who said in verse 20 of chapter 1, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. From bitterness to now praise. She praises him as she's faced with this food. And this man, Boaz, who happens to be a relative, one who may provide for them, as we see in verse, reading on in verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. We'll consider that more next week. But she begins to praise, as one pastor said, her heart catches up with her mind. And she begins to see that God is good. I wonder, perhaps, if you're in hardship today, could it be that in the midst of your sorrow and your bitterness, God is about to bring great provision and care upon you? Well, she not only goes from bitterness to praise, she goes from full to empty. She was the one in chapter 1 who said, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. But as we read on in verse 21, we see, And Ruth the Moabite said, Beside, he said to me, You shall re- keep close to my young men until they have finished my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, the daughter, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. That will be seven weeks. Seven weeks of gleaning. Seven weeks of accumulating food. And, and she who was empty is now full almost. There's one thing she needs left. And it is this thing that is is constantly thrust in front of our face. The fact that she is a Moabite. That she is an outsider. In fact, you even see that in verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite said... We saw in verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite, we saw that the foreman recognized that she is a Moabite. We even know that Ruth knows she's a Moabite. In verse 10, she says, why are you being so kind to me, a foreigner? In fact, you get to the end of verse 23, at the very end of this chapter, and she lived with her mother-in-law. We're left thinking, come on, Boaz, right? What are you waiting for? I mean, there's this tension here. It's almost like a to-be-continued because she is not fully provided for yet. He wants to draw attention to that, that there's more that God will do for her as we'll consider next week. But what we see here is that God cares abundantly. God stopped the famine. God bound Ruth to Naomi. God sent hardworking Ruth to godly Boaz in order that he might provide for his people. I wonder, have you considered the compassion of God on you lately? 
His compassion for you comes every day. It is fresh and new every morning. God is good to you. Not to say that every day is easy, that there are no hardship and trouble in your life. Certainly these women experience hardship and trouble. But I would suggest to you that God's compassion is far greater than any difficulty and hardship you might face. In fact, his compassion will be the, what carries you through your hardship and difficulty. It carries you during it and brings you out in this life or the life to come. In fact, if you were maybe to start making a list of all the things you need, just think about that, all the things you need just for today. I, I, bet, I bet you would write down all the things that you need and all the things that God have provided. You would write for quite some time, and maybe even longer than this sermon. Right? If you would, God's provision for you is great and bountiful. I think you should take note of the kindness of God in your life. Rehearse them in your mind when anxiety comes. Praise Him for them. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I do want you to realize that the Bible teaches that all the good things in your life that you enjoy come from God. They're God's blessings to you. And yet His blessings to you does not imply His approval of you. God not only cares deeply for you, but He also cares deeply for good and evil sin and righteousness. In fact, I would in compassion tell you this morning that you, if you're not a Christian here today, are in far greater danger than Ruth and Naomi ever were. There are things worse than starvation. It is the judgment of a holy God upon those who refuse to come to him. And yet God in compassion has sent Christ. God in kindness has sent his son who lived a perfect life and died upon a cross Not for his sin, but for mine and for all those who would trust in him. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. And he says, now, if you will take shelter in me, if you will come to me, I will save you. Something I'd love to talk to you about more, perhaps after our service or sometime this week, you could send me an email. That we could consider how it is that God provides this compassion for us. For us Christians, as we leave this morning, go and be compassionate like our God. Go and care for the people who come in your way. Care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien. In fact, God tells us to do this over and over again, and he tells us why over and over again. For instance, he says, you are to care for those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Christian, you once were just like Ruth, impoverished, outcast, with an incredibly bleak future, and he came to you. He showered you with his favor. He welcomed you to his table. He served you his blessings. He has sheltered you under his wings. Therefore, of all the people in this world who ought to have compassion, it ought to be those who have received it in abundance, namely you and me and all who are in Christ. So let us leave here faithfully representing the God who has showered us with grace and mercy. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. It is abundant and overwhelming, and we rejoice in all that we have received today and in Christ. We thank you for this work. We thank you for drawing us together that we might hear from you. We pray for the individual here this morning that does not know you, has not yet experienced your mercy and blessing. Oh, they've experienced your care throughout their life, but their mer- your mercy remains out of their reach. Will they, by your power, bend their knee? Will they be willing to come to Christ, trusting in him, we pray in Jesus' name. You are dismissed.